Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 139, Psalm 139, and the guys are going to come forward with some Bibles. And if you need a Bible, they're going to make their way to the back, and it's marked for you at Psalm 139, and you can keep that Bible, bring it back with you each Lord's Day, it's our gift to you, because we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Now let me just briefly explain where we are in our messages at this point in the middle of January. Just before the holidays began at Christmas, we took a break from the series that we're going through in the book of Acts, did a Christmas message, and then the plan was to do our annual at the beginning of the year State of the Church address for a couple of weeks. So many of our folks were hit with the Omicron virus that we decided to, as you've seen on the screen as Pastor Larry's made the announcements, it's also on our website, that we're starting 2022 in the month of February. <laughs> so we're kind of just making our way through January, limping along as best we can. And it's our hope and prayer that folks are being able to rest and heal and gradually get back then uh, together so that we will be able to, uh, on February 6th, two weeks from today, do the State of the Church Address. So we'll do that for two weeks, first two weeks of February, and then after that, we will pick up again with our series in the book of Acts. So in the meantime, today I'm going to explain uh, why I'm doing the passage in Psalm 139 that we are. Next week, we'll have a one-off message. And then, as I said, February 6th, we will have the State of the Church Address. Today is the day after an important set of anniversaries that have had profound effects on our country to this very day. Today is January 23rd, but on January 22nd of 1973, three important things happened. One author described them this way. It was a day unlike any other in U.S. history. January 22nd, 1973 was the day Henry Kissinger flew to Paris to end the Vietnam War for the United States. It was the day the Supreme Court issued its opinion on abortion rights in Roe versus Wade. And it was the day the nation's 36th president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, died of a heart attack in Texas at age 64. Few days have represented such a turning point in the trajectory of our history. And what happened that day started a chain reaction that turned politically nuclear, leaving us with the current landscape of unbridgeable divide. The Vietnam War ushered in an era of distrust of institutions to be made worse in just a few years with the Watergate scandal. The death of President Johnson was in the context of his having signed the Voting and Civil Rights Acts just eight and nine years earlier, and the beginning of what is known in the political world as the Southern Strategy that would affect race relations for years to come. And these both live on to this day. But for Christian people, for those who believe God's Word, the Bible, and what it says about the origin and value of life, by far the most important event that day, 49 years ago, was the Supreme Court's decision to, in one fell swoop, by fiat, invalidate the laws of 50 states regarding abortion. In that decision, the court determined that abortion in the first trimester was inviolable. In the years since, the procedure has advanced well beyond the first 13 weeks to include the barbaric practice of partial birth abortions. And so today is what, we, what has been called for decades Sanctity of Life Sunday. 
in which those of us devoted to the pro-life cause remember and recommit to defending human life. And I'll suggest at the end of today's message, it also allows us to reflect on how we can advance human flourishing. Since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, there have been over 60 million abortions in our country. It's an average of 1.2 million each year. That's over 100,000 each month, nearly 3,500 a day, about 150 every hour, two to three every minute, about one every 30 seconds, two to three since I started this message. However, the rate of abortion has declined dramatically from what it was 10 years after Roe was decided up until today. The early 80s was the peak for abortions, with 29 abortions for every 1,000 women having undergone the procedure. But today, today it's less than half of that, 14 per 1,000. Now, that's due to many factors, including the use of birth control, so there are fewer pregnancies. But it's also due to the many laws that have been passed in states that have restricted abortion in various ways. It can't be, at least to this point, outlawed outright, but it has been restricted in a number of ways. 24-hour waiting periods, parental consent laws, ultrasound requirements, regulations on abortion clinics, and so on. For decades, those of us committed to the pro-life cause have marched, and picketed, signed petitions, and prayed. And I want to single out and thank our very own Paul McKenzie for his tireless efforts for decades in organizing and encouraging and advancing the pro-life movement. And with all of that, then, the year 2022 may well produce what we thought was going to happen in 1992 but it failed in a 5-4 Supreme Court decision. And so the court was disinclined to reverse Roe as we had hoped it would. But a few months ago, just last year, the court heard a case that, again, asked it to overturn Roe. And with the current composition of the court, most observers believe that's going to happen this summer. If it does, as I expect, it will be a monumental achievement on the one hand, and it will also present some challenges on the other. Today, as we observe Sanctity of Life Sunday, we're going to be reminded what the Bible teaches about our responsibilities to uphold life beginning in the womb, but also after birth. So let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for all that you ordained. We know that all that you do for your people is ultimately good, even if difficult, even if just inconvenient. And so, Lord, we thank you for the snow today. And it made it difficult indeed for some to be able to be with us. We thank you for those that are able to be here. And, Lord, you have ordained those to be here and those who could not. We thank you that many can join us and participate via live stream. And we thank you, Lord, that we can open your word. And on this day, Sanctity of Life Sunday, consider what you say about this issue of life and our responsibilities toward it. Help us, Lord, to be renewed in our understanding and help us to recommit to our pursuit of protecting life that you give. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we provide an outline for you that you should have received on the way in. And... Uh, I say, first of all, in that outline, that we must protect life. 
our mandate to protect life, even in the womb, is because life cannot be separated from God. Apart from God, there is no life. And what God has provided is, by definition, sacred, set apart. That's why we call this day Sanctity of Life Sunday. Sanctity, holy, set apart. We get sanctify or sanctification from it. And if you notice in your outline, each of the points, A through D, under this first major point, relate life to God. Life is from God, point A says. Life is by God. It's to God. It's of God. And so we must protect life, first of all, because it is a, I say in the outline, a gift from God. The Bible tells us that God has life in himself in John chapter 5. God has life in himself. This is why God can give life, because it originates with him, and why the Bible can simply start with God. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1 and verse 1. He created, but he was not himself created, because he has life in himself. Now, consider that everyone, no matter their belief system, they must start with something that explains everything. Everybody has to start with something that explains how we get to to everything. And every system has to assume the beginning of the first person or thing or substance. We assume the existence of God, and from Him all else derives. And after you assume the first person in God, life originating from life is much easier, friends, to defend than life from non-life somehow arising, which is what so many try to do. And what God did miraculously in creation, he does providentially in procreation. So the Bible can say, children are a gift from the Lord. Gift in that God is the originator of the life, and so he's the one who gives it, but also in that that life that's given is precious. That verse goes on to say, in fact, that children are a reward. They are valuable. They are to be prized. When conception takes place and a birth results nine months later, God is behind it all. And that's why Hannah said regarding the birth of her son Samuel that she had prayed to God for the giving of this son. She said, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. Likewise, in the book of Ruth, in the last chapter of the story of Ruth, we're told the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now, a fallen world obscures the good gifts of God. God gives life, and that life is to be lived to the full. And apart from the curse that's on the world, it would indeed be so. But there is, the Bible teaches, since Genesis chapter 3 and the entrance of sin into God's world, there is a fallenness, a curse upon the world so that we all come into the world with a sin nature and the world into which we come, all of us, is a world that's affected by by the fall. The environment, the creation itself, our bodies are affected by the fall. So Romans 8 says, the creation waits in eager expectation. The creation itself will be liberated from what it's in now, namely bondage to decay. But our bodies and environment then are fallen, and so things do not always work as designed. That's why there is infertility. 
There are miscarriages. These are seen to be the effects of the fall precisely because we know that life is a gift, one that will be fully restored in the kingdom. We know that life is a gift. We know that life is the the norm. We know, though, that life is abnormal in some ways because of the fall, but it will be fully restored to normality in the kingdom. So life is a gift from God. And I say in your outline, life is created by God. Now when I say here life is created by God, I mean more than what I've already said, that he's the originator of life. That's true. And it has to be underscored regularly as it was when the Apostle Paul preached to philosophers in Athens, Greece in Acts chapter 17. Paul began his sermon this way, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And then Paul goes on in that sermon to say to them this, in him we live and move and have our being. And if you notice there, if you can see that phrase, that sentence is in quotation marks. He's quoting a non-Christian who said those words. And then he goes on to say, and some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He was saying that even your own pagan writers and poets know the truth that life comes from life and God is the original life. But beyond God as the originator of life, the Bible teaches he intricately designed each life. Pastor Larry read from Psalm number 139 and I've asked you to turn there. One commentator says of this passage, in the opening six verses of Psalm 139, the psalmist talks about the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. And here in those six verses is a level of knowledge that the psalmist can't understand and neither can we. And then in verses 7 through 12, he talks about the omnipresence of God. He made everything. He knows everything. He's everywhere all the time. You cannot be out of his presence ever. And then in verse 13, he moves to where all really began in the personal sense. Verse 13, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now just take that first statement, you created my inmost being. Literally in Hebrew, you created my kidneys. You created, you formed my kidneys, which was a term that was used to refer to the complex of organs that made up the human anatomy or the inside of the human body. You, God, formed my inward parts. You knit me together, verse 13, in my mother's womb. The DNA strips that are woven together, you wove them together. You wove together the complex genetic plan that produced me. You were the weaver. In verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully, that means awesomely. It's a Hebrew word meaning a high level of reverential awe. It's a staggering thing the psalmist is saying. To think of what you have done, God, in fearfully and wonderfully making me. Your works are wonderful, he says. I know that full well. I know that you made me with this intricate design. And then he gets more technical in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. 
You were making me and you framed me. Bones, muscles, sinews, ligaments, tendons, structure. You were aware of all of it. It says, when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, the depths of the earth is a euphemism for the womb, the hidden place, secret place. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. My unformed body is a Hebrew word that means something rolled together, something balled up before it unfolded, when it was just a genetic mass. It was an embryo. It was that ball before it began to unfold. You framed it. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You wrote in your book everything that was going to take place for my days before any of them ever took place. Friends, this is God personally, intimately involved in the very first stages of life. Life yet unfolded. God is intimately involved. And so God is, is not looking at us like a map with red dots to indicate where we are. God sees deep into us and has known us intimately from conception. And that's why verse 17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. The psalmist says, You know so much about me that I can't even count all your thoughts about me. They would outnumber the sand of the sea. It's an amazing statement. God knows intimately everything about you from the time of your conception because he made you and he made every person ever conceived. Job understood this. And that's why he said, your hand shaped me and made me. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and in your providence watched over my spirit. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb. So you have all that marvelous information in Scripture about God, the giver of life, the originator of life, and then God, the designer, down to the very details of the life's, lives that he gives. But, as I said, we live in a fallen world, so what about, what about a deformed child? What about those with disabilities of various sorts? Well, friends, none of that is outside the scope of God's oversight and design either. God allows what he does in a fallen world for his good purposes. Exodus chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, Who gave man his mouth? And who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so God knows and God uses and God determines. John chapter 9, we have an instance of the apostles bringing to Jesus one who was born blind. And they made the assumption that many of Job's friends had made in the first part of your Bible when Job was afflicted with all of the difficulties that he underwent. And you remember that his three friends assumed all along that Job must have done something to deserve all of this calamity that came upon him. And so carrying that retribution theology into the New Testament the apostles come to Jesus and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We know somebody sinned to make it happen. Who was it? Whose fault is it? Remember what Jesus said. He was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. No one, nowhere, no how, with no condition, 
is outside the scope of God's oversight and God's use in his sovereign plan. Life is a gift from God. It's created and designed by God. And life is precious to God. It's precious enough to God that he includes in his law protection for life in the womb. In Exodus chapter 21, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, and there is serious injury to the baby, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. If there is serious injury, and if, and if the baby dies as a result of that, then the people who caused it will sacrifice their lives as a result. Because God regards this life in the womb as indeed life. It's precious to him. Because he cares for life, he requires capital punishment for those who take innocent life. In Genesis chapter 9, he told, God told Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, because, in the image of God has God made man. Now notice I said God requires capital punishment for those who take innocent human life. This idea of innocent human life being protected answers the faux objection that some make to us pro-lifers, saying that we're inconsistent if we advocate, on the one hand, a pro-life position for life in the womb, but at the same time, capital punishment. But in protecting life in the womb, the life of the child, we're protecting innocent human life. And life is so precious to God that those who are guilty of taking innocent human life, he says, forfeit their own life. Taking the life of the guilty is a way of expressing the value of innocent life, according to Scripture. It's so valuable that no one is allowed to take it upon their own presumption. And if they do, they will forfeit their own. And that's not just the Old Testament law. It extends into the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 13, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. If you want to be free from the one in authority, then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. The sword was used not for filing nails, but for capital punishment. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Life is a gift from God. It's created by God. It's precious to God. And it reflects the character of God. You know that the Bible teaches that God created man in his own image, Genesis chapter 1. And so the life of humanity reflects the character of God. As you've heard me say many times, this image of God in humanity is such that we were made to reflect God back to God. We reflect, we reflect God back to God in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we act. There's a moral and we'll see a personal resemblance to God having been made in His image. James chapter 3, the importance of this image is underscored. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. 
It's a warning that we do not use our tongue to slander others. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They're valuable to God. They reflect Him. Again, Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed because in the image of God has God made man. So when you destroy the image, when you destroy a human being, you're destroying that which is made in the image of God. That's to be protected. There is this moral resemblance, as I mentioned, to think and talk and act like God, but there's a personal resemblance as well in that God is a person with the faculties of thinking and acting and feeling, and we too are personal beings. Only persons then can sin, and that's important when you look at a passage like Psalm 51, where David writes in the psalm, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I have a sin nature from the moment of conception, but only persons can have a sin nature. And therefore, David is assuming that at conception, a person then is brought into being. Psalm 51.5 indicates that when one becomes a soul and is, from the time, is a soul from the time of conception, and that's why we advocate for the protection of life from conception. And it's also one reason that the miraculous conception of Jesus was necessary. Because it bypassed the normal procreation process, which kept the sin nature from being passed on to Jesus. The sin nature is passed on at conception. And in the miraculous conception of Jesus, he interrupted that normal process and thus interrupted the passing on of a sin nature. Because of all of that, because life is a gift and it's designed, created by God and precious to God and, and it reflects God, then, friends, we must protect life. And so we protect life by never succumbing, if there's ever the temptation, to take life out of the womb, to destroy life in the womb. That we protect life by advocating for policies that indicate what God says about life from conception and in the womb. We do that by being aware of those who will implement those kinds of policies and voting accordingly. But having protected and advocated for laws that protect life in the womb, we must also, I say in the outline, not only protect life, but I suggest promote life. You see, the Supreme Court ruling this summer may change the dynamic of the abortion debate in several ways, some of which will highlight the need for pro-life Christians, like us, I think, to back up our love of preborn life with demonstrations of love for post-birth life. You see, to be pro-life, it's not enough to simply care about life in the womb. We care about life after the womb. We are pro-life, which should mean, I suggest to you, that we are pro-all of life. And you see, when abortion is prohibited, as many of us expect it will be this summer, or is allowed to be prohibited by the Supreme Court, then it's going to become a state-by-state -state issue. 
So what's likely to happen this coming summer as the Supreme Court decides is it is going to overturn Roe v. Wade so that abortion on demand is no longer a constitutional right. That's what it's been since 1973, a constitutional right, like the freedom of speech, like the freedom of assembly. It's a right supposedly given to you in the Constitution and therefore is inviolable. But that looks like it's going to be overturned. Now that won't mean then that states cannot allow abortion within each state. They can. And they will, and it will become a state-by-state -state issue. But now the states have the opportunity to outlaw it outright, to restrict it in whatever ways they, they see fit, and that's what's going to happen. And when that happens now, that's going to create some realities that we haven't, had to, we haven't dealt with in these last 49 years. Prior to Roe v. Wade, one of the things that affected public opinion about abortion in favor of abortion was the horror stories of things like back alley abortions. Many of you remember those, those stories. We haven't heard much about that in the last few decades because it's a constitutional right, so that issue is kind of taken off center. But now that kind of thing is going to come back, I would suggest, because there's going to be a battle state by state for which states are going to allow and which are, and which are not. And so those who are pro-abortion are going to tell you about all the horrors that will happen as a result of having outlawed abortion in a particular state. Politicians will now have to stand up and be counted. It's going to be really interesting to see what pro-life politicians do now that their pro-life vote really matters. You see, to this point, their pro-life vote hasn't meant much. They couldn't outlaw it. The Supreme Court didn't allow it. But now they're able to outlaw it. And all of the, perhaps, political consequences that go with that, so we will see if they have the courage of their convictions. Politicians are now going to have to stand up and be counted in ways that they didn't have to before. And I think it would be good for pro-life Christians as well to stand up and be counted too. When that happens this summer and in the years that follow. And I suggest to you, friends, that this gives us an opportunity to promote human flourishing. To show that we are not only interested in life in the womb, but life after And I believe we Christians should seize that opportunity. Seize that opportunity to show that the Bible teaches a whole-of-life philosophy. Seize the opportunity so that it affects our witness to an onlooking world in a very positive way. One verse that impacted me to my core decades ago was this one in James chapter 1 that says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I can still remember vividly being in a church service at our parent church decades ago and our pastor was preaching in James and he came to this passage. And I remember how the Lord used that verse to grip my heart about the vulnerable 
and the need for Christians, those who name the name of Christ, religion that God our Father accepts, is to look after the vulnerable. We don't just talk it, we do it. Orphans and widows are spoken of often in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And God requires that they be looked after, that they be cared for, because they were often the most vulnerable in that society. There was no social security for, for widows. These widows, these women, widows, they lived in a patriarchal society. And so when their husband was gone, their livelihood was gone. Those who had no father, orphans and widows, had no government programs to take care of them. And God says, my heart is that you, my people, take care of those who are in need, particularly the vulnerable. It's the reason that God used that verse in my heart, planted that seed, and some years later in God's providence, I had two nephews that needed a home. And we had not had our first daughter, Lainey, yet. We were trying. We had several miscarriages. And God in His providence presented this need from these two boys in my, my family. They were in fifth and sixth grade. Their family fell apart overnight. And they needed a place to live. And so we adopted my nephews. They lived with us through junior high, through high school. And we were at that point not looking to adopt. We thought adoption might be what God has for us if we're unable to conceive ourselves. But at that point, we were not looking to adopt. Shortly thereafter, though that the boys came to live with us, we had Lainey. And then three years later, God gave us Annie. It was not our plan to adopt those boys. But it was their need that moved us in that direction. You see, that's what God does. He puts needs in front of his people. He tells us what kind of people we are to be. And then he expects us to move as we are able in order to meet those needs. And I think it would be good if in the years to come, care from Christians overtakes condemnation. Care overtakes condemnation. And I want to end by suggesting to you that this care should take two forms from Christians. Care over condemnation. The first kind of care is with our language. The way we talk about those who are participating in this horrendous act of abortion that God decries and that we in turn then decry. But taking care with our language in how we deal with those participating. I have personally never been a fan of indiscriminately labeling all who are involved in the tragedy of abortion as murderers. And I'm suggesting we take care with our language. Now, let me be very clear. Abortion is murder. It is the taking of an innocent human life. It is sin. And all involved, from the woman to the doctor to the politicians, have a measure of guilt. But you all know that biblically and practically, guilt is not always equal. It depends on what one knows and what one's situation is, even biblically. 
That's why we have in our legal system levels of murder charges. We have first degree, right? We have second degree, so it's murder. But there's first degree, there's second degree, there's manslaughter. Jesus said to Chorazin and Bethsaida, two cities in which he did miracles, he said, woe to you. For if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. You are guilty and more guilty because of the light that you've been given, the understanding that you've been given. And so I suggest to you that we carefully take that into consideration and use our language with care. The doctor who makes money by killing babies is a murderer. But not every woman who finds herself contemplating abortion is in the same situation. And many are not flippantly taking the life of their child. Some may be afraid. They may be afraid of their father as a teenager. They may be afraid of their boyfriend or husband. They have sinned and, yes, have murdered their child. It is true. And they have to live with the extreme guilt of that. But I suggest we take care in the language we use, calling the act what it is, dealing with the people involved with all the compassion that we can. There may be some in our congregation who are dealing with that guilt. Be careful. Speak biblically. Speak accurately. Speak compassionately. And there are ministries, whole ministries designed to help with that guilt, that overwhelming guilt of having done what I've done, maybe when I was 16, maybe when I was 23, maybe when I was 32, but whenever it happened and under whatever circumstances, there is that guilt. Some of you know our sister uh, Sharon Sternberg. They, James and Sharon were with us for a number of years. They moved to the west side of the state, but Sharon was involved for 16 years. She only recently stepped down. She was involved for 16 years with a ministry called Healing Hearts. Healing Hearts is precisely about this issue. It's about helping post-abortive women deal with the guilt that they have and the forgiveness that they can find in Jesus. I would like for Healing Hearts to be a part of the counseling center that is part of our church's 10-year plan. Better to help rather than inflict further harm, friends. And being careful with our rhetoric is one way for us to do that. And going forward, I suggest that as now abortion can be and in some states will be outlawed, we ought to advocate as a whole-of-life approach to take pressure off the woman, to raise a child, to have that child, we're saying have the child. You don't abort the child. Have the child. Well, then that being the case, let's do what we can to support them having the support they need to bring up the child. Even conservatives now on the political arena are advocating for a child allowance to help women do that. That's a matter of opinion. You don't have to agree with me on that, of course. But we do need to grapple and think about those things. It encourages the having of the children and helping with the expenses to raise them. As a church, 
we can, and I would love for us to, in fact, do, have a crisis pregnancy center as part of our 10-year plan community cares ministry to help women with the needs that go with a pregnancy that they had not, had not planned. I, for one, believe in ministries of mercy. Ministries of the church that show the mercy of Jesus to the people that we're trying to reach. And I believe that God is going to give us in the years ahead with this Supreme Court ruling, especially now, the opportunity to show the love of Christ as we back up the beliefs we have in our pro-life doctrine. So let's be pro-life. Let's be pro-all of life. Let's protect life and let's promote life as well. And so I say in your take-home truth, we must protect and promote innocent human life because it's God's gift and it reflects Him. Let's bow together. Our Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and on this day that we set aside for Sanctity of Life Sunday to consider you as life in yourself, that you have life in yourself and then you are able to give it, you're able to create it, you're able to design it, fashion it. We thank you for telling us in your word the work that you do with each individual, every individual life at conception. You were involved in designing that life just as you intended to be. And so, Lord, we are pro-life from conception. And Lord, we thank you that we're at a point where now it is possible to put, put laws behind the morality that is necessitated by this godly view of life. But, Lord, there are many things now in a fallen world that are going to come out of that that we must, as your people, reflect you in, care for widows and orphans, participating in adoption and encouraging adoption and encouraging things like adoption and guardianship to be made easier, not harder, so that these dear lives can be cared for. Lord, so many other ways that we'll be able to show the mercy of Jesus. And help us, Lord, then to be people who, yes, call sin what it is, but Lord, we care more than we condemn. And that that's evident in what we say, it's evident in the way we behave. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be a beacon of light in the darkness that is a sin-cursed world in the years ahead. And as a result of that, may we speak Jesus, may we, may we embody the character of Jesus in the way we go about what we do. May you draw many to yourself as a result of that who will bring glory to your name and will tell others of the forgiveness that they found in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song. Thank you. 
concludes our services for this morning, just one uh, for the next week and, and one more after that, and then we look forward to everybody being back in February. Thank you all who are here, everybody via live stream uh, for listening in, singing, um, and applying the message to our hearts.